Hey there, Brainiacs, and welcome to episode three of Brainwaves, Vivid Cortex's podcast series where we talk about topics related to databases, data management, technology, startups, and engineering in general. My name is Alex, and I am one of your hosts. Once again, I'm joined by Preetam and John, a couple of Vivid Cortex's Brainiac engineers. What's going on, guys? Not much. Not a whole lot. How's it going? Yeah, good. Good Thursday so yeah. far. Can't complain. It's good. Uh, I'm happily with you guys in the office this week, so yeah. don't have to stare at a blank conference call screen. <laughs> happy to be here. Our show this time is called Serverless with a Side of Hardware, and we have a pretty interesting discussion planned. We're going to be talking about how leaps and innovations in technology have uh, outward like ripple effects on the people who use them, um, even if they're not the ones designing or implementing the technology themselves. So, to begin today's episode, we have the question, what does it mean to go serverless? So, Preetam, uh, tell us about serverless computing. Sure. Um, so, I'm going to focus on um, Amazon Web Services' new product, Lambda, or I guess it's not new at this point. Um, but, of course, most of this stuff is going to apply to anything else that's similar, like uh, Google's Cloud Functions. Um, I think that's what it's called. So, basically, the... Uh, the goal of Lambda is to um, get you to you know, not really think about servers anymore. So typically when you have to uh, you know, run some sort of program, you uh, provision an instance or a server um, or a virtual machine. Uh, it's running in the cloud. Uh, so that could be Amazon Web Services or um, Google Cloud or something. Uh, you put your programs on there, and then you know, they run. Uh, as usual. So it's just like running a program on your computer. Uh, but with Lambda, it's um, it gets a little bit, uh, in a way, simpler and yet more complicated. So instead of running programs um, that are really complicated, now you're just thinking about running just simple functions. Um, so in Lambda, you basically upload a function, and whenever an event happens, like um, you know, somebody uh, sends an API request or you have some sort of um, event within S3 or um, you schedule something with CloudWatch, uh, your function gets executed. And the really interesting thing about that function is that it's not just, um, you know, build per instance or whatever, like a server. It's actually build per function call or execution. Um, so typically when you think about... Um, you know, buying or renting instances, you're thinking on the orders of a few hours, uh, and you're billed hourly. Um, but with Lambda, you're actually billed on the order of 100 microseconds or uh, milliseconds. So it's just an or like orders of magnitude uh, more granular in terms of billing. So, like you know, people like the cloud because you get that flexible billing. You only rent things uh, when you need them. Well, this is just an order of magnitude smaller. That's pretty crazy. I mean, uh, to my ears, the idea of serverless computing, um, and I know that's not, not purely 100% technically accurate. It's not totally serverless computing, but it's close enough that they can kind of make that metaphor. Um, that sounds crazy to me. It's, it's serverless from our perspective. Um, you don't have to worry about, you know, specking your own instance and then deploying to it and managing the system and underlying software. I don't have to, to deal with any of that as a, a user. I just upload my code to, to Amazon or to Google and they do it for me. 
Would you say it's accurate to say it's a serverless as a service? Um, I would say it's more like a cloud as a service, whereas EC2 is a platform as a service. So if you think of uh, the, the saying, the cloud is just somebody else's uh, hardware, um, serverless is really just somebody else's cloud. Uh, <laughs> they're handling all the logistics for you. Okay, cool. Um, a couple other notes we, we made uh, researching Lambda that we thought were kind of cool was just, uh, so Lambda, of course, refers to the, the Greek letter Lambda used in mathematics uh, to represent functions. And some of the, the ways that Lambda has been used um, in different places that Amazon is sort of referring to when, when they're talking about their Lambda services. Uh, so in, in science and technology, for example, Lambda uh, in heat transfer denotes the heat of vaporization per mole of material as uh, explained on Wikipedia. So AKA it's latent heat. So that's kind of a metaphor that when you're using Amazon's Lambda service, you're only paying for the quote-unquote heat that's coming off of your function as you're using it. Yeah. Um, and then what was, uh, John, there was there was the other... In, in yeah, so right? uh, in, if you're a mathematician, uh, Lambda calculus, um, or in computer programming, we have Lambda functions, which are just... Um, they're functions that aren't bound to an identifier, um, which is... If you think about it, this is just running a function that's not bound to a server. Um, so it's it's very transferable for, for computer programming. Cool. So very clever and well-named on Amazon's <laughs> part. And uh, finally of note and probably not meaningful whatsoever, uh, if you go to Amazon's website and see the logo for Lambda, it is Lambda is actually the symbol for the video game Half-Life in exactly the same color and font as the video game, which... Mm. <laughs> Half-Life 3 confirmed? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it is episode 3. Oh, man! <laughs> Can you imagine Valve announcing uh, Half-Life 3 on the Vivid Cortex podcast? That'd be very fun. <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's going to be our show title this week. <laughs> Half-Life 3 confirmed. Um, so yeah, that's, that's Lambda. The idea, and, and one of the ways that I found it easier to understand what's going on here is to think about Lambda as um, reactional computing. So instead mm -hmm. of instead of having your function up and spinning all the time, you have it waiting to be triggered by some sort of event in your app, and then it spins it up, and then you're only charged by the the, the bare minimum according to 100 millisecond increments of yep. how much you need it for. So guys, why is that a game changer? What what does this mean? Um, just in general, in technology for organizations who might be interested in, in using Lambda as a service, why is this a big deal? Uh, so let's let's start with a use case. Um, <clears throat> if you're, I don't know, starting a startup and you've got a, a website that has a little bit of a watch behind it, and you've got uh, an API behind that, um, you need to to host that API somewhere. Um, but you know, starting off. Traffic's probably maybe a little, a little sparse. Um, you're not necessarily going to have a, a thousand users hitting your service simultaneously all the time. Um, so if you spin up a server to handle the load, then you're paying for that hourly, even though it's not actually being used. Uh, if I deploy my API to Lambda instead, then uh, I'm only paying for the time when my site is actually handling traffic. Um, and that's that's really important for from a price perspective. So anytime you have um, a situation where you've got a service that is being used just periodically, it's not running all the time, uh, and you don't have a reason to have have that uh, those server resources uh, spun up all the time, uh, Lambda is a great alternative because it basically lets you save a ton of money. 
um, that that's really great for you know everyone out there running startups or uh, just wants to uh, test ideas. I mean, if you want to host a, a toy program or a, a side project, uh, no problem. I don't have to pay for it unless I'm using it. So it's it's largely resource allocation. Uh, yeah. Also, also you know flexibility. Um, the sure. the really nice part about you know virtual machines in the cloud as well is we we don't have to worry about you know. Um, I don't have to worry about specking on hardware and building a server or anything like that with the cloud. With Lambda, I don't have to worry about deploying my own binaries and managing my own virtual machines. Um, so there's a little bit of, of ease of use as well. Okay. So it's kind of you can kind of think about it as like pay-as-you-go servers. Mm -hmm. um, so would you say it's mainly a financial benefit? Well, uh, the finance aspect is you know pretty important, but the flexibility is also as important. So now, um, so one of the things that Lambda lets you do is you can define the uh, resources that a function has access to. So um, I guess right now it's just the uh, the memory that it has. So you can define functions that have like as low as, I think it's 128 megabytes um, and you pay for that tier um, and then you pay, you know, uh, for how long it runs and stuff like that. But instead of thinking about uh, resources in terms of, you know, you have big applications or multiple applications on a single instance, now you're thinking one function at a time. And, you know, just in terms of uh, trying to determine how many resources you need um, to run something, it's a lot easier to think about this, like a little, um, like a logo block or something instead of this super complicated um, you know, structure that has many little pieces that you have to consider. Okay, so it's not just changing, um, not just changing like where you push the buttons on what you're doing or just how much money you're saving. It's actually changing some of the ways you might think about development. If yep. you're a developer that's thinking about using this, it's, it's actually having a conceptual change. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's really cool to see what people do with with technology like this. We we have changes from going to you know deploying virtual machines to going to uh, just uploading functions to be run in somebody's orchestrated container environment in the cloud. Uh, what kinds of, of different ways of of handling uh, a server infrastructure? Or I shouldn't say server infrastructure. We're we're talking about serverless. Uh, <laughs> the the different ways you think about maintaining um, your your system architecture and your your applications. Uh, and I'm sure, we're, you know, even though Lambda's been around for, I guess, a couple of years now, um, I don't think we've seen all of the, the innovations that are come out of this. There's probably maybe some uh, some new companies or, or devs that think of some wacky things that they can do with it. And uh, it's going to be really, really exciting. Are there any specific uh, cases you have seen already that loop to mind? Off the top of my head, I can't think of any. Um, I, I think the, the biggest one is I've seen a lot of people use side projects uh, and hosting on Lambda. Uh, which is again, you know, great if you're just hacking on something in your spare time and you just want to test it out. I, I can pay like fractions of a penny to to play with my my toy app that I wrote on the side, versus you know, I don't know, a few dollars a day for uh, for EC2 instances, which doesn't sound like a lot, but if you want to just leave it up there, then it's it's great. So uh, to point at one specific. Um... I guess project or something. Uh, TJ Holloway Chuck's new ping service, which is um, I guess a health check 
monitoring service, kind of like Pingdom. Um, I think he runs all of that on Lambda. And it's pretty cool because it's kind of like, you know, it, it's definitely one of those uh, reactive and event-driven kind of services because all it's doing is just pinging servers like once a minute. Um, and, you know, that that's the kind of thing that you can conceptually, uh, you know, break it down into functions. And um, it makes sense why Lambda is a perfect fit for something like that because if you're not pinging a server, uh, you know, during that one um, once a minute period, it's not doing anything else, right? Um, so you can think how you know that could generate a lot of waste if you're just provisioning instances. Um, maybe you know everything's doing work at that one second uh, within that minute or something like that, and um, it's idle the rest of that time. So um, yeah, when you have an instance, you have to think about okay, well I don't want everything to run at that one second and then be idle for the next 59 seconds. So you have to think about like scheduling things out and making sure you're maximizing um, the resources that you have. But with Lambda, you know, you're, again, you're not thinking like um, about all of these pieces working together. You're thinking about one piece at a time. It's a lot simpler to think about. You know, it's funny. I, I would imagine that a lot of people outside of uh, computer technology probably don't think about time in as granular a scale as, uh, especially when it comes to building systems and um, databases and things like that, where, you know, if you said the average person, I have something that's going to run once per minute for an hour. You, the, the, I would guess the average person would think, well, then it makes sense to, to watch it, to keep it turned on for an hour, because once a minute, you don't really break down things beyond maybe a second. So mm -hmm. sure. it, it makes sense to just cover that whole time period. But if you have functions that that execute in two one hundred milliseconds, and to, to to have to pay for that to be turned on for even a whole minute is many many factors times greater than what you actually need. Right. Um, so it's it's just crazy to think about that time scale being warped just by the speed of what's going on. Yeah, I think uh, it, it might be useful to think about this like renting cars. Mm -hmm. You know, you can rent cars per day or something like that, or you can, you know, rent a taxi for a couple of minutes or however long it takes you. Uh, so it might, it might be interesting to, like, um, come up with, uh, you know, just convert those units somehow that makes sense. Yeah. Like, for example, um, somebody at some point came up with, you know, just um, operations like a disk access or sending an, a packet across the network. You know, these are things that happen on the scale of milliseconds or um, several milliseconds and stuff like that. And somebody just took that um, and converted the unit so that it's, you know, um, on the scale of like uh, flying from New York to San Francisco or something like that. And when you put things on a human scale, it's a lot easier to think about. So I think it might mm -hmm. be cool to just um, do that same sort of thing for Lambda. There's there's a great graphic out there that shows like computing uh, if like one uh, computer clock cycle was one second, then if you write data from uh, the East Coast of the United States to the West Coast of the United States, that's equivalent to like three years of time. Wow. Um, so in in the computer world, uh, we we are constantly battling time. Um, and to give you some some context on on how long 100 milliseconds the the billing 
unit for Lambda is. Um, so your average server is going to have a processor that runs at around 2.3 gigahertz. Um, that means that it's executing an instruction once every half a nanosecond. Well, okay. uh, so very, very often. Um, and in terms of uh, like a web page that loads, um, I think the, the average perceptible amount of time that we like notice something loading for is um, if it takes longer than 100 milliseconds, then we can actually perceive the, the delay. Um, so 100 milliseconds is roughly how, uh, how quickly you can notice something changing. Sure, sure. Um, maybe a little bit faster if you're really paying attention, but uh, that's, that's about how long it takes for uh, a fast web page to load. It's interesting. It's, um, I imagine with any kind of technology, when you hit those limits of the scales of human perception, it, there are uh, obstacles get that much more extreme just because people who might be outside the technology, who might be bankrolling it, who might be setting up policy for it, might not appreciate what those, uh, those edge cases, those percentage points that are um, hugely significant, but not perceivable, how, how important those might be. I think it's important to put it into context. I, yeah. If you live at this level, then I can say I made my, my web page load 10 milliseconds faster, and someone will say, wow, that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Average person rolls their eyes. <laughs> yeah. So I, th I think um, I just thought about an interesting aspect to this. Um, so if you are you know, running things one function at a time, it gets really hard to monitor. Um, so the whole, like, you know, we've been using servers for a while and we kind of understand, like, you know, how do I check CPU usage, right? You, you know how to do that because we're, we've been doing it for decades, I guess. Um, so to do that, you know, when you're dealing with functions that can last, like, 100 milliseconds, that's really a, a challenging problem. You really need, like, to have monitoring somewhere else. Um, that can you know think about things like that. Can I use a lambda function to monitor my lambda functions? There you go. <laughs> <laughs> but who watches the watcher? <laughs> oh no. <laughs> so this I'm like in this conversation I'm hearing some echoes to our our what we talked about in episode two about S3, another Amazon service. Sure. Um, and how uh, having a central provider set something up, taking some of that responsibility, um, accepting some of the risk that goes along with providing a service like that opens the door for the people paying for those services to innovate, to rely on that central service. Um, is it only possible for something like this to be set up by a massive, centralized, uh, very well-provisioned organization like Amazon? Uh, no. Um, in fact, the infrastructure that Lambda uses, I'm sure a lot of companies probably have something similar to it um, in a much smaller scale. It's just really hard to maintain it at the level that, that someone like Amazon is doing. So um, if you're a small company, you probably have a hard time offering it as a service. Uh, that takes a lot more engineering effort around not just reliability and quality of service, but also um, things like orchestration. Um, but if, if you read into Amazon's uh, page for Lambda, you can kind of get the idea. Basically, all they're doing is they're uh, running a container platform with orchestration in the cloud. 
uh, and you are basically adding a function that gets stored in S3, and then they download it and put it in a container and run it on demand. Um, so this is definitely something that you could do yourself, but why would you want to? Um, it's the same the same idea as you know I I don't want to go and and build servers and uh, and rack a data center just so that I can run my web app. That's that's stupid. That's a waste of my time. Is the perception that um, I don't think creativity is the right word, but I'm going to use it that the like really creative part of uh, development or for building an app or maybe even the the part where the most value comes in is taking place at a different level than like building servers, building these more, um, these mechanisms that enable, like these enablement tools. So like, you know, you, you, why, why build your own hammer when you right. go sure. rent one down the street? Most, buy your own? most startups that are running in, in the cloud, their value proposition isn't, oh, we're running in containers. That's how they operate their site. Um, and depending on your particular requirements and your particular use case for your, your site, it might make sense to go and orchestrate it yourself versus using a, a service like Lambda. But you, you've got to keep in mind when you're, you're devoting engineering time and resources to handling things like you know operations, this isn't what we're doing to make money. This is what we're doing to support the application that makes money. The, the creative work is whatever you're selling to your customers. And no one's product page that I've seen recently says, hey, we're running in Lambda and that's mm -hmm. why you should buy us. That's, yeah. that's not what you advertise. That's, you know, that's how, how it's it's built. You see Intel inside the people advertise they use Intel. I never understood that, but yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> fair point. I think it's a, a branding thing. Great marketing by on their part, yeah. They they nailed it, yeah. Remember they used to put stickers like Intel inside on laptops? Those are still on my laptop. Uh, <laughs> and like, yeah, it's that's... It's interesting how they, they managed to keep doing that. So, like, is it, would you say this might be analogous to, say, like, an operating system? The same way that uh, people, you know, there's a handful of operating systems that most people use because not every computer wants to have to build their own. Like, now now there's a, a base uh, landscape of these of these platforms that people use to build their apps. Is that is that stretching it too far? I think that's a relatively reasonable uh, comparison. If you think about the technology that um, this stuff is built on, uh, things like Docker uh, and uh, uh, what's it called, Kubernetes, uh, those are open source technologies. Um, and it's kind of the same idea: is we're looking for better ways to write and host uh, and maintain our software. And the the, te the core technologies um, are open source contributed by multiple different companies, just like how Linux is developed by a bunch of different companies because most people aren't selling operating systems. Uh, even the people that sell operating systems are making money off support in most cases. So, uh, you know, why don't we all work together to make something better since this is what we do for, for, you know, paying the bills. Yeah, I think it's really interesting because again, it's going back to like the whole cloud argument and we kind of talked about this on the S3 episode. Um, Yes, you know, you're trusting one company to maintain all this infrastructure for you, but it's not necessarily like you're locked in. Mm -hmm. um, again, when we talk about the S3 um, uh, service from Amazon, um, you can look at Google and Google Cloud Storage has the same APIs and you can, you know, shift things over if you wanted to. Um, but the other nice thing is because these services have like very clean abstractions, 
people can make their own versions to run on their own systems if they wanted to. And it's kind of like, you know, when you go back to operating systems, um, so POSIX is the API that um, kind of encapsulates all of those like Unix principles and stuff like that. And that's why like most of the time when you have, you know, super simple applications, you can compile them on macOS, Linux, or BSD pretty easily. Now, I, I, that's like a gross simplification, but if you stick to like that API, it makes sense and it works. Um, so, you know, going back to S3 and, you know, EC2 and stuff like that, there are companies like Eucalyptus um, that make um, Amazon or AWS compatible products that you can run on your own hardware. And I think it would be, uh, it's going to be likely that we're going to see the same sort of thing happen with Lambda. So Google has cloud functions. I don't think it has the same APIs, but um, I don't see why they couldn't, you know, provide the same API. Um, and just like what happened with S3, you're going to start to see uh, maybe startups and, you know, other enterprises start to make alternatives that you can run on your own hardware, just like you see multiple operating system vendors. And the more we abstract this stuff and the simpler the interfaces that we're dealing with are, the more likely you're going to have uniformity among them all. Mm -hmm. And we talk about how S3 is so very simple as a, a service. Um, and if you look at the, the APIs for, you know, Google Cloud Storage and Amazon's S3, they're basically exactly the same because how would you change them, right? Uh, it's about as fundamental as it gets. Uh, Lambda is a little bit, a little bit different, um, a little more complicated, but the cost of migrating from you know, one serverless platform to another one probably isn't that steep. You're basically just talking about uploading a binary and doing a call to run it. So it's not overly complicated on its own. The, the cost of switching is not super high. Um, our, our switching costs in general as um, technology companies have gone way down as we've been making more of these advancements. You think about, you know, the switching cost from back in the ye old days when you had your own server and you wanted to go to a new data center, that was a really high switching cost. These days, it's, oh, whatever, just move it over here. Yeah. <laughs> so in this, in terms of these kind of big uh, mind-blowing tech changes, and I, I mean like serverless, sure. which as a term sounds like it shouldn't be possible, <laughs> um, are there any kind of other examples uh, that are analogous changes that have these big central effects on how developers or organizations might think about how they build their apps? Uh, sure. So we, we called this uh, serverless with a side of hardware, and I'm a hardware nerd, so I'll talk about the uh, new releases that have, have come out recently. Um, so if you haven't heard about uh, Intel and Micron's uh, 3D crosspoint memory, um, go look it up, or I'll just tell you about it. Uh, <laughs> so Intel is releasing their first um, crosspoint-based solid-state drive. Uh, and basically what crosspoint is, is it's a new... Uh, technology for storage. Um, so it was developed jointly by Intel and Micron, and we don't know a whole lot about how it works under the hood, but the basics in terms of um, what it means for, for computing is it's roughly between um, RAM and your, your NAND flash SSDs in terms of its uh, behavior and characteristics. So it's more expensive um, than like a flash solid state drive, and it's got lower storage densities, but it's got a lot better uh, access latency and performance. Um, and in terms of um, how you can use it, you can actually use it as uh, 
non-volatile memory, just like a, a solid-state uh, drive. And it also has the potential to be used like RAM is now, except because it has that non-volatile characteristic, you have memory that will keep its state when you shut off the machine. Um, and this is really exciting because if you think about the way that we, we have computers right now, it's been kind of a fundamental idea that when you shut things down, you lose whatever state you had for a program. Well, that doesn't necessarily have to be the case. Mm. Uh, if you're using non-volatile memory to, uh, to run your programs out of, then that, that's kind of a game changer in itself. You have a program that's got a lot of state that it's got to build up when it starts. So you think about like a database server that has a huge amount of, uh, of data that's being cached. Um, we can now like think about what happens if we shut this thing down and turn it back up or turn it back on. Um, can we just pull the state right back out of memory? So this is this is a, a new kind of uh, memory. Yeah, it's it's not the same as uh, as your your SSD in your laptop. Um, right. It's got a few different characteristics about how it works. It's different technology fundamentally and how it stores data under the hood. Um, the highlights are um, so solid state drives. Um, you can only write a, a page at a time, uh, so they're stored in like four kilobyte uh, chunks. And if I want to modify one byte of data on my solid state drive, I have to write a new page, um, which leads to fragmentation problems. Okay. Um, and it also has uh, what we call write implication. Um, I, I wanted to write one byte, I'm writing four kilobytes instead. Well, that sucks. Um, so solid state drives are really fast um, because they don't have like a spinning disk like our, our traditional magnetic storage used to. Uh, but they run into problems because of write implication, because of fragmentation. Um, Cross-point memory can be overwritten one byte at a time. So it's really good for um, random access workloads. If I want to randomly write bytes all across the storage, it's roughly as fast if I wrote them sequentially, uh, which is not the case for solid-state storage. And based on the benchmarks that we've seen so far, it's got way better um, access latency in general than a solid-state drive and uh, a lot tighter um, performance bounds. So if you look at like the 99.9 .9 percentile for writing data to a solid state drive versus the 99.9% uh, uh, latency for uh, cross-point memory, it's a lot smaller a delta um, for cross-point. So you've got better characteristics under load, faster performance, um, and you can use this in, in different ways because it's got that, that almost order of magnitude improvement. So if this is something that uh... I can think about like how it's going to serve a role in my my laptop. If I can go out to a store and buy a laptop, and sure. it's going to have it inside of it. How how is this similar to Lambda? Is this um, does this have a, a central service role? Like it's it's a little different in that this is a, a technology that's kind of sitting in between um, two traditional roles in in your computer. You had your your hard drive and you had your 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 DRAM, um, and this is kind of you could make it do either one, and it'll behave differently depending on depending on the, the use case. Um, so a couple of use cases for, for Crosspoint would be, you can use it as a, a hard drive in a case where you have to do a lot of IO and you have a lot of performance concerns. Um, so you think about smaller data sets that need to be really, really fast. Um, we could use them as in place of solid state drives. Or again, we can talk about the fact that we can leverage um, slight trade-off in performance versus gaining non-volatile characteristics in memory and what that gets for us. So we can have large pools of memory. It's got better um, storage density than RAM does, so we can have a larger pool of it 
and then it saves its state when we uh, shut things down, which means if you want to do something different with an application, uh, like again, having a database save its, its cache state and not have to reload it from, uh, from the hard drive when it boots up, then you could do that. So are, are end users going to be going out buying cross-point memory pretty soon? Very much doubt it. Um, so to give you an idea, uh, Intel's first SSD is 300, uh, 375 gigabytes, and it's priced at roughly $4 a gigabyte. Oof. So yeah, it's like a $1,700 hard drive. Um, good luck. Uh, <laughs> but, if, but if it's in the cloud, you can rent them. Yeah, there you go. Ah, there we go. Um, and if you think about like what this is good for, this is new technology. This is you know bleeding edge. Um, who's going to buy this kind of stuff? It's going to be companies like Facebook, Google, Amazon that have warehouses full of servers and huge performance requirements, and they need more speed, more speed, more speed, more speed. Uh, and they've got tons of money they can throw at this kind of stuff too. Um, so prices will come down over time, and we'll probably see a consumer model that you can buy and put in your, your laptop. Uh, of that, I have no doubt. But in the meantime, what we're probably going to see are uh, transparent benefits. Okay. Um, so you know, all these companies that have cloud offerings, so Amazon, Google, Microsoft, they can take cross-point memory and put it in their data center and then rent it out. Um, and I don't mean that in the sense of there's going to be a new Amazon EC2 instance with cross-point storage attached to it. I'm thinking more along the lines of um, having a faster EBS volume. They can talk about reducing the write latency for EBS because they put a cache of cross-point memory in front of their, their uh, traditional storage. And now it becomes a lot faster to write to disk. Um, so we can get benefits from these fundamental improvements in hardware technology uh, that we wouldn't have been able to, to take advantage of otherwise. And they're totally transparent to the end user, which is great, because as a developer, it means I don't have to change anything in my application. The service I'm, I'm renting just got better, and I don't you know, pay any more money. So as an end user, I might find the costs for the services that I'm, I'm used to paying for going down. I might, I might find my, the services I use getting faster. I might find that things are more consistent, more reliable. But I might not actually see the technologies uh, that are behind those changes. Right. It's it's more the organizations, the engineering teams, the developers who are actually building these apps, taking advantage of these uh, Intel inside sort of technologies that the average uh, non-technical person who's not building apps wouldn't necessarily know about. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So I think it, it's kind of cool because when we you know look at the um, you know, EC2 instance comparison page or whatever, we're not looking at what kinds of processors that they're running or what kinds of SSDs that they're running. We're just looking at, you know, like more memory, more uh, storage or something, faster disks, and lower cost. So as an end user in the cloud, that's sort of what I'm focusing on. Um, and that's, you know, what I want to see get better. Um, it's not that you know, for me, I don't really care how uh, Amazon or Google or Microsoft, you know, how they're going to make it better. I just want to see those results. And I think it's it's getting pretty competitive and um, creative for them to start to provide those benefits um, however they can. If you if you go and uh, look around on online, you can find some articles about how uh, Google and Facebook they actually contract out. So you mentioned uh, them taking advantage of Intel inside. So they actually have contracts with Intel 
to um, make custom hardware. So uh, I think Amazon does this as well. The uh, like the network infrastructure that they put in their data centers is custom built and designed by uh, by their engineers. So Google's got their own reference design for like a switch, for instance, and it uses components that they spec'd out and Intel built for them. Um, and that's something as a consumer I can't do because I'm not a multi-billion-dollar conglomerate. Um, so thanks, Google. <laughs> really? Uh, we'll talk about that later. <laughs> <laughs> Someday, life goals. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's it's cool that we have these these companies that are, are making these services, and it's getting competitive to the point where they have to think about how can we do something that no one else can do, um, and how can we tailor uh, the the needs of our specific use case and, and get them get them met by the marketplace. So you know we're not we're not buying stock anymore. We're gonna <laughs> go and design it ourselves and make sure we we only have the best for us. So how how might the developers themselves think about this stuff? Um, when when something like Lambda or Crosspoint is announced and released, should should developers always be jumping on the first opportunity to start adopting these technologies? Should every engineering team uh, be, you know, bending over backwards to integrate these these bleeding edge uh, developments into the way they, they make their apps, the way they do their business? So when it comes to something like uh, like Crosspoint, you're, you're not going to see it. Um, you, my hope is that as a developer, you're not really thinking about that unless you're a kernel developer or, you know, a system engineer in that case, you know, start thinking about all the cool things we can do with this new storage technology right now. Um, <laughs> but uh, if you're, you know, building web services, that, that's not something that you need to, to worry about. You just need to know in a year or two, you know, you're going to see the benefits, the, the continued improvements that we're getting from our cloud service providers. They're not going away, um, at least not this year. Uh, for services like Lambda, it's a little bit more visible to us. And as developers, we can think about how can we leverage this? Um, how can we make our service better, cheaper, easier for us to maintain? Um, and a lot of those, those services, you know, things like Lambda, they come from having other building blocks um, that we've, we've built. And sometimes that comes from hardware and sometimes that comes from software. Um, so even though you don't see what went into that, we, we get the, the end benefits. Yeah, something I, I find <clears throat> really exciting the more I learn about this stuff is the way the traditional role of developer is evolving. Um, not in a way that, that makes uh, any other role obsolete, but in a way that gives uh, the average technically engaged person the, the tools and the means and the access to break down the silos and the boundaries that keep them really only focused on certain technologies and interests. Um, and this is something we, we care about at Vivi Cortex specifically, um, is, is giving people the ability in a really DevOps sense to see more than just their traditional focus and to see the entire, um, to see and understand and to appreciate the entire mechanism that's going into uh, the engineering process into building what they're, what they're building. Yeah, I think the interesting thing with Lambda uh, for developers is that, um, again, they don't need to uh, rely on an ops team or an infrastructure engineer to, you know, sort of manage AWS components for them. Um, 
you know, if a developer wants to scale up a service and they're running on Lambda, they don't have to do anything. Uh, maybe they tweak like the memory required or something, but uh, all of that stuff is managed by Amazon. Um, so, I mean, if you want to talk about empowering developers, this is kind of the way to do it because um, with Lambda, all you're doing is writing code. You're not really thinking about anything else. And that allows you to focus 100% on the code. Um, and I think that's a huge game changer because if you don't have to worry about infrastructure or anything else, um, you're going to use those resources and that creativity to work on making your product better, as John mentioned earlier. So I I disagree with the um, the end result a little bit from, from what Preetam said. For me, Lambda is just another tool in the toolbox. Um, we still have to think about what are what are our requirements. <laughs> right. <laughs> our, our VP of engineering always asks us that. What are our requirements? We thought about requirements enough. And we're, we can't escape from, from that reality. Um, but it allows us to not get caught up in, in the nitty gritty or doing like continuous management of things when we can leverage these services and abstract it for us. So um, services like Lambda don't obviate the need for thinking about your infrastructure, but they eliminate the need for us to go out and do things like spinning up servers and resizing crap all day long. You know, the, the mindless work that detracts from thinking about how we can improve our services and offer more value to our customers. Um, so it's the end. The end is still everyone can spend more time doing the things that uh, deliver more value or the things that they want to do. We can, you know, think about higher level problems. Um, it's basically just abstracting out uh, the drudgery of uh, of infrastructure management. I think the other cool thing it does is kind of force you to um, to move into the whole, you know, separating compute and storage mindset. Uh, so if you're running an instance, of course you have storage there on it, um, and you get tempted to, you know, put stuff on there, and um, you're going to assume that it's going to be there uh, after a restart or something. Um, with containers, you know, you're kind of moving um, towards that separation direction where uh, you can't sort of rely on having that state there once you store something. Uh, with Lambda, you can't have state in the function because, like, it's a function. Um, so you, I mean, it forces you to put that storage stuff uh, somewhere else, like S3, RDS, or something else. And that way, from the beginning, you're forced to think about things, um, you know, storage and compute separated. Uh, so that uh, it kind kind of gets you started with the best practices. So obviously this isn't like uh, this isn't always the best architecture to have, but for most applications, uh, that's where you want to go in terms of scalability and flexibility and stuff like that. So I think um, yeah, Lambda sort of forces you to make those right decisions upfront. I would say maybe the the Zen takeaway here is you don't need. Great servers for excellent service. Although I wouldn't tell my favorite restaurants. To play <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Um, I think that does it for today. Uh, thank you for another great episode. And for our listeners, um, if you have any questions or comments, you can always send them by email to podcast at vividcortex.com, or you can leave them as comments on the Vivid Cortex blog where we post each of these episodes. Also, a uh, quick heads up, 
Brainwaves is also on iTunes, where you can find it by searching for Vivid Cortex and subscribing so you get every episode as soon as it comes out. You can also find us on SoundCloud and Overcast.fm. Thanks for tuning in, and stay brainy. 